0: Now, it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Ron Brownstein. Ron Brownstein is senior editor at The Atlantic and a senior political analyst for CNN. <laughs> a two-time finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of presidential campaigns, he was previously national affairs columnist and national political correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. He also serves as Atlantic Media's editorial director for Strategic Partnerships. Please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Ron Brownstein.
1: Thank you all for coming out, uh, and we just have a great panel, so let me uh, jump into the introductions and, and get us started. To my immediate left, Joel Auberbach is a distinguished professor of political science and public policy at UCLA and director of UCLA's Center for American Politics and Public Policy. He's the author of several books, including In the Web of Politics, Three Decades of the U.S. Federal executive. Lynn Vavrek is professor of political science and communication studies at UCLA. She's a regular contributor to the Upshot at the New York Times, where I read her with, with great uh, interest always, and co-author of The Gamble, Choice and Chance, in the 2012 presidential election which was named one of the best political books of the year by among others national (laughs) journal one of our (laughs) publications Uh, john woolley is a political scientist at uc santa barbara and co-director of the american presidency project website which is an absolutely indispensable repository of presidential public papers he has written extensively particularly on monetary and financial policy and finally Adam Winkler is a constitutional law scholar at the UCLA Law School who wandered into a meeting of political scientists. Um, (laughs) uh, And also the author of many scholarly articles, as well as a terrific 2011 book, Gunfight, the Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms, in America. And before we get started, I should should probably start by thanking Zocalo for recognizing, I think I speak for all the panelists here, for recognizing that in this age of 24-hour cable and the internet and talk radio, that one of our great national challenges is a shortage of opportunities for political pundits to have their views heard. So uh, I want to thank you for taking a small step toward toward rectifying that here tonight. Um, Look, we have seen presidents pushed the boundaries of executive authority throughout American history at various points. Um, But certainly in recent years, we saw President George W. Bush consistently uh, push the boundaries on national security issues. We saw President Obama push the boundaries on a number of domestic issues, including immigration uh, and climate. Um, When we look at what we have seen before, and particularly in kind of our more recent experience, is what we are witnessing under President Trump in his exercise of executive authority something that is within the continuum of what we have seen, or is it something fundamentally different? Joel?
2: Well, I think it's both. Uh, It's certainly, as you point out, presidents have been uh, exercising unilateral authority more and more. Um, political science types have ascribed that both to rising public expectations of what presidents can do and the fact that American government isn't set up to do much, so there's a a lot of tension there. Um, And on the other hand, in, in, say, Trump's case, um, lacking, it appears, a legislative strategy and lacking appointees and lacking a lot of other things that we'll probably discuss here, it's going to be awfully hard for him to get legislation through the Congress. So the executive order turns out to be the tool that the man has available to him, at least in terms of communicating with the public. So I think it's been even more emphasized.
3: I want to say both as well, and I'll stretch this uh, story a tiny bit um, to go back a little farther in time. So, lest you think this is really unusual, um, you know, just remember uh, King George III, and if you remember your schoolhouse rock, that no more kings. Like from the very beginning, the the founders were worried about giving the executive too much power, and the battle between presidents stealing power from other branches and from the states, quite frankly, has always been a part of the. American story, Um, and then where I'll stretch it on the current Mm. end is to say that in addition to the executive orders, um, one of the areas where I sometimes wake up in the morning and say, I am a little uncomfortable with this, is in the contest that Trump has set up between diplomacy and military action. Mm. Um, And I do worry a little bit about that, especially with the understaffing um, in the State Department.
4: Yeah, so the, it seems to me that, the, that the consistent, a consistent factor in presidential behavior over time has been this rise in expectations, but it's also, we've, we observe that presidential power is not fixed and it matters what the context is, particularly what the, um, what the political context is with respect to the president's party and the president's party in Congress and how big the president's electoral margin was. So presidents can get away with different things depending upon different kinds of contexts. And it's also useful, as I think you almost did, to differentiate between um, the international commander in chief, mm-hmm. uh, 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 you know, military side of the, of the authority and the domestic side. And um, one of the sort of truisms is presidents get away with what Congress lets them get away with.
1: Adam, because uh, I want you to jump in on this, but also to add this kind of frame to it. Uh, do we? Do you think we have a sense yet, yeah, a kind of a unified field theory of what President Trump believes are the boundaries of executive authority? I mean, do we? Do we know where he thinks the boundaries are? <laughs> you
3: don't well, get that on cable we, news. We do,
0: but they seem to change on a daily basis. So I don't really know. Um, Uh, No, we don't really know what his his view is of executive power, except for the fact that we know that he ran his campaign with very much a top-down strategy Mm -hmm. where he is the decider, he is the decision maker. And you do get the feeling that Uh, President Trump does have a lot of control over what's happening uh, in the administration to the extent he wants to have it. And I think with regards to the larger question of the growth of executive power, there's no doubt that every president in the modern era has expanded executive power, Democrat or Republican, um, and Trump will likely do the same. What I think is different about Trump is that he's so aggressive and overt in his assertions of executive power without regard to sort of the norms of governance, right. that we're going to see, I think, uh, ironically, Trump will be one of those presidents that leads to new limits on executive power, because I think we're going to see, and we've already seen the courts step up and start to develop new doctrines to limit executive power, because they don't like what they see happening uh, on Pennsylvania a- can, Avenue. Can I
1: stay there and follow up? Because I think uh, you know, there has been, as we said, a kind of a secular trend toward presidents trying to expand their authority in lots of different ways. But I think one of the reasons every seat in this room is taken is because there are a lot of people worried that Trump is qualitatively different, President Trump, and that it's not only a question of like trying to encroach power from Congress, it is a question of whether he ultimately will accept or undermine basic democratic norms criticizing judges by name, uh, the lack of transparency, questions of conflict of interest. Is there something different about the way he envisions uh, the role of the executive in a check and balance system than other presidents? Is there something qualitatively different here or not?
0: I think there is, and one of the things that's different is is that presidents have aggrandized their power over the last 70, 80 years, but it's largely come uh, at the expense of Congress. So if there's three branches of government, the executive branch is getting stronger, Congress is getting weaker vis-a-vis the president. But we should remember that the courts over the last hundred years have also Mm -hmm. gotten remarkably more strong than they ever were previous in American history. So we've also seen a great growth in judicial power. Now what's happened since FDR is that most presidents who wanted to expand their powers just took on Congress, Mm -hmm. didn't really take on the courts. Obama might diss them in a, uh, the Supreme Court in a State of the Union address, but they're not really taking on the courts. It does seem like Trump is willing to take on the courts, at least verbally and in tweets. Um, uh, it might not be that effective as evidenced by his uh, tweet when he lost uh, one of the early travel ban cases and he said, well, see you in court. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, right. Joe. I, I think it's is, important to remember also there's a big partisan aspect to this. Yeah. I happen to be um, study right-wingers, okay? So during the Bush administration, the Democrats all right. Right, were against Bush, uh, among other things because he was this tyrant with his executive orders. <clears throat> Many of you are probably Democrats and you don't follow right-wing media, but we have just lived through the worst tyranny in American mm-hmm. history under President Obama. Oh with his use of executive orders. Right. Uh, And that's what you hear on right-wing media. So there's a split in the country, and even in the survey data, uh, with elites you see it, when when the Republicans are in office, the Democrats, Hate executive right. orders right. and right. are down on the president when the Republicans are in office. The Democrats are I, also. I want to.
1: I want to come back to the partisan uh, breakdown yeah. here in, in a few minutes. But the President Obama did say, "I've got a pen and I've got a phone." That's what he said after 2014. So, to what extent did he kind of uh, pave the way for a uh, for a President Trump to say, "Look, I was elected, and this is how I'm going to implement my agenda"?
3: Um, I think that. That President Obama is playing a large role here, but not in that way. Um, I think that it's important for everybody over and over again to remember all the things that everyone said in this first pass, which was mm-hmm. presidents do this of, from both parties for a long, long time. Um, but where I think President Obama is relevant is a little bit in the things that Joel was just talking about the backlash that we're seeing now, in my view, is in large part a response to eight years of Barack Obama as president. And that doesn't just mean a Democrat in the White House, it also means the first non-white man in the White House.
1: You're talking about electorally, though. You're not talking um, about you're, uh, you're, well, in, in the underlying uh, Trump phenomenon, rather than yes. the way Trump is approaching the presidency. Th-
3: that's right, okay. that's right, yeah. And I think that if I can just 10 more seconds on yeah, this, so the question take, take that, um, that Adam was talking we about. We don't have to that, go to commercial break at any point. <laughs> 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 it's so weird um, yeah. Yeah. that uh, that I think the way Trump is approaching the presidency, which is what you were pushing me to get back to, um, I think that is, largely who he is, right? It isn't Mm -hmm. a special thing he's doing because he has a vision of what the presidency ought to be. I think he's not much interested in being a leader, which is unusual for Mm -hmm. us. Most Mm -hmm. of our presidents care about the common good and want to be leaders of their vision of it. I don't think Trump has any experience with the common good. I don't think he particularly cares about it. I don't think he's interested. He's like the Charles Barkley, if you remember Mm -hmm. the Nike, I am not your role model ad. He's not interested in that. And I think that's manifesting in his behavior as president, not afraid to fail, right? He's just, we'll throw this out there, well maybe we'll win, maybe we won't, but then we'll do it again.
1: So John, I wanna get you weighing in on this question. Uh, You know, almost two categories here, like aggrandizing presidential power to act unilaterally, threatening democratic norms. To what extent does what President Trump is doing bleed over from the first into the second?
4: Right, the big big issue that has disturbed a lot of people is is a very general issue is, Mr. Trump's lack of respect for all kinds of norms, right? So um, he's, the, he's the kind of candidate who a lot of us would have said prior to his candidacy, um, no candidate can stand up and say this and become the president of the United States. A bunch of us did. We, we all said so, that. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so, so the, the question really in that respect, and it also g- goes back to the power issue, is about norms. And I think that one of the things we know about President Trump is that he um, is has been profoundly and deeply ignorant about government policy and processes. And um, and you know he's made he made statements he made the statement you know that he alone could solve the problems, and a sort of personal uh-huh. Uh-huh. sense of his efficacy that that leads you to question whether he understands that he doesn't actually have all that much power. And the, the link back to Obama is that what Obama's the, – the source of opposition to, to – uh, the most effective source of opposition to Obama's executive actions came from states, from the states, mm. from states' attorney general who brought suit. And, and they were quite successful about it. And they laid out a model that turns out – They're
1: following now.
4: Liberal state attorneys general can do the same thing. Right. And so we don't have it normally, it's part of the story that the courts have become a big piece of the and, checks and balances and, and, in a way that we hadn't always expected.
1: And let's stay there on both aspects of that. Because Let me ask you, which is, uh, you know, if you go back when the Democrats were raging against Bush on some of his uh, surveillance and other, uh, the treatment of detainees, They they found that even with control of both chambers of Congress, they could not stop him through congressional action because there were too many barriers, the veto, others. Uh, When Republicans were raging against Obama on the Clean Power Plan or the, uh, the, the DACA expansion to adults, they could not stop him. But in each case, in both the Bush case and the um, Obama case, ultimately the courts did stop them on certain fronts. So is it, and now we have seen with President Trump, the executive order on uh, travel from the Muslim majority nations, and then just today, the executive order on sanctuary cities, uh, which was struck down or enjoined. Um, is, it, is it the case now that for a president, the boundaries on a president are set by the courts, not by the Congress?
0: Well, uh, to be sure, I mean, and that's been the case for a, a long time because Congress is just not doing its job uh, protecting its own privileges and stopping the president. So when they devised the separation of powers, the framers, they thought the idea was that each branch would be very jealous of its own prerogatives and powers and that the legislative branch would fight against the executive branch and keep the executive branch in line and the executive would fight against the courts and, and uh, all, it goes all the way around and everyone fights against each other. But the framers famously did not imagine political parties. And today what we're seeing is that we still have separation of powers, but at least in the White House, uh, in presidency and the Congress, we don't have a separation of parties. And without Mm. a separation of political parties, you're not really going to get an effective check because members of Congress, for instance, Republican members of Congress right now are not interested in protecting the prerogatives of Congress. They're interested in a Republican policy agenda. Uh, and so they're gonna side with the president even when he expands In a
1: quasi-parliamentary ballot. way, essentially. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, uh, are, uh, John and, and maybe everybody else, uh, are the courts enough? Are, do, the, do the courts establish, when you look at the Bush experience, the Obama experience, and what's happening so far with Trump, are, do the courts establish enough of a boundary that we can all kind of go to sleep Okay, understanding that our, that our constitutional democracy is going to look the way you know if we're going to wake up in four years, it's going to look pretty much the way it does now. Or without a congressional source of check, uh, is there are, can can the courts kind of effectively bound a president?
4: Well, the the my, my sense of the of the uh, of the way checks and balances work is that no one piece can be counted on to do it all by itself. And so the courts are a very important component of it. They've emerged as an important component and a and a, um, a battleground at this moment. Um, the media, uh, you, you can think about the the checks and balances design as a design to uh, to force information and disagreement and statement into the open, statements into the open. It's about information, the provision of information, and that means that. The checks and balances system is not just about Congress and the courts. It's also about the media. It's about everything that that makes us informed and makes us ask questions.
1: Joel, uh, are the courts enough, uh, particularly considering that now, once again, there are five Republican appointed Supreme Court justices. Is is that ultimately going to change the way people are looking at these fights as they maybe go all the way through the uh, through the judicial system?
2: I, while we while were speaking, I was thinking of exactly that. A lot of these cases are going to be appealed up the line, and so the Gorsuch appointment is central uh, to this whole business. Many of the lower court decisions are potentially going to be overturned by the Supreme Court, um, and then we'll have a different view, perhaps, of the of the role of the courts at, at that point. Yeah. Uh, and the other possibility also is, we haven't experienced it yet, but how much the administration actually adheres to court decisions. Um, well, to, as,
1: as Adam knows, there's a portrait of Andrew Jackson in now in the, in the Oval Office, and Andrew Jackson famously <laughs> said, John Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it. Yeah. Could you see Donald Trump? <laughs> uh, this is in 1832 or 31, something like that. Uh, can you, could you see Donald, President Trump, uh, functionally, if not overtly, ignoring a court decision?
0: Uh, I doubt it. Um, uh, it could happen, who knows uh, you know, what he's going to do. I don't want to <laughs> spend your time reading tea leaves, <laughs> predicting what mm. Donald Trump is going to do. Tea is best met, left for making tea, I mm. think. Um, But I do think with regards to the courts, actually the story is pretty complicated. I mean, just because Trump has nominated uh, Neil Gorsuch and got him confirmed to the Supreme Court does not mean that Gorsuch is gonna be some kind of lapdog for presidential power or for Donald Trump. Uh, And in fact, you can be pretty Mm. sure he's not. In fact, Gorsuch, what many liberals are afraid of with Gorsuch is he's articulated a very robust view of judicial power that would take a lot of power away from the president. So, there's a doctrine, you'll read about it in the coming months with Gorsuch, about uh, the Chevron Doctrine. And it's a legal ease, but it's basically a doctrine that says that when administrative agencies interpret some statute, the courts are going to defer to those agencies as long as it's a reasonable interpretation. Gorsuch's view is that that's judicial abdication, that the courts should step in and say, This is what the statute means, here's how you define the ambiguity. Executives, uh, president, you must listen to the courts. So, I do think that Gorsuch in particular, is, a, uh, is a, a justice who will fight against mm. aggressive assertions of executive power, at least in some circumstances.
1: Let's step out of the courtroom and back into the political arena. And um I want to ask you about something that I've wondered uh, about what, how it contributes to this trend we've, we've all talked about, of uh, presidents trying to act more unilaterally. One of the things that is become more common in our era, so common that we don't even really remark on it, is that unified control of government, like we have now, has become much more rare than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, From 1896 to 1968, for 58 of the 72 years, one party simultaneously controlled the White House, the House, and the Senate. And twice in that period, one party controlled everything for 14 consecutive years. the the Republicans under McKinley and Roosevelt and then the Democrats under Roosevelt. There was 10 years in the 20s that the Republicans had everything. Democrats had everything for eight years in the 60s. Since 1968 until 2016, we had 12 of 48 years of unified control. Obviously, we have it now. Um, but no one's had it for more than four consecutive years. And while, government, while divided government has become more common, as you know, it's also become harder, and, and everybody knows, it's become harder for a president to draw support from the other party in Congress. I mean, we have more party-line voting. So if you're gonna have a, a situation in which the usual circumstance in which is, is Congress and the White House are divided, and the president can't get the other side to work with them as much as was possible in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, isn't it inevitable? that they're gonna say, it's a dead end in Congress. I've got a, I've got a phone and I've got a pen, as, uh, as President Obama said.
3: So I, I think there is some um, historical evidence that things like that happen. People tend to think of executive orders as presidents with pens and um, phones just uh, waking up in the morning and saying, like, this is what I wanna to do today. Mm. Um, and uh, Joel and I had a student at UCLA who wrote a really nice dissertation Um, with this interesting finding that in many cases, these executive orders are kind of problem solvers that on average in Congress, across both parties, the entirety of Congress would like to have something happen. Mm. Like, for example, um, escorting a black student into a university in the South in the 1960s. But because of the partisan divide and because of parties, they cannot pass that in Congress. But the majority of Congress would like it to pass. So what happens is the president says, I can do that. I can make that happen. And that executive order actually moves policy in the country closer to the congressional average where they would like it, even though Congress itself can't function to get that done. Is the congressional
1: average also the average of the public opinion?
3: Well, if you... If you think that the representation in congress is is if that link is good, then yes so
1: the, you're, um in your in your view in your view, presidents pushing the boundaries have it's usually been a benign force i th- I think you're saying that has consolidated where the country is. But for whatever reason, for all of the structural reasons, Congress can't get there legislatively.
3: Not not always, but but often. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly, you know, some of these executive orders are our are, are, are highest soaring civil rights moments, like the one I just mentioned, but also our lowest moments, um, like, you know, interning the Japanese executive order. So, yeah. you know, it can, it, you don't want to really say it's benign, but um, but they aren't, typically just one-off, completely orthogonal ideas.
0: You know, Ron, it's worth remembering that um, uh, executive orders go back a long way. Hmm. This is not a new phenomenon. The Emancipation Proclamation, perhaps one of the most famous documents in American (laughs) Mm. history, was an executive order issued by President Lincoln without the support of Congress. Um, So we've had great executive orders, too. uh, But even in that case, it was viewed as a lawless act by opponents uh, who thought that uh, President Lincoln had expanded powers in the same way that right-wingers thought Mm. Obama did and the way left-wingers think Trump
1: is doing now. Do do you think that... asserting more unilateral, and I I don't want to narrow it just to executive orders because the Clean Power Plan was not an executive order, it was a regulation. Uh, uh, More unilateral executive action is a logical response to a world in which divided government is more common and cooperation between the parties on legislation is more rare. Is it a logical way for presidents to respond
2: to that environment? I think it's particularly logical under the current circumstance, which is as follows. Once upon a time, there was something called the uh, Conservative Coalition in Congress, Mm -hmm. and it consisted of Republicans and Southern Democrats. And the the Southern Democrats were the people who often were not only the chairs of the committees, they were the deal-makers in the Congress, and they bridged a lot of these gaps. Unfortunately, they had a lot of other characteristics Mm -hmm. that we we, uh, didn't care for. Um, But they did play this important role, now that the parties are so divided, now that the South has become Republican, you notice how hard right, it is for right. them to bargain. Right. Uh, they're just not going to do what the president because, and the other Because party there's more wants. pressure
1: on their base, from their base not to give in on anything, right? Not
2: to give in on anything. And another legacy of the past from the progressives, the direct primary means that Ooh. activists in their districts have a huge amount of control over their futures. So they're not only playing to their so-called party base, but to the most assertive part of their party base.
1: And, and for those in the audience who want to get a great, dramatic representation of the conservative coalition, the portrayal of Richard Russell in *All the Way* with LBJ <laughs> on right. HBO is pretty, pretty darn <laughs> Shakespearean and compelling. Can I, can I throw a curveball and John, ask you <laughs> say what you going to say? But I have a curveball. I want to. I, I want to ask you after, go ahead.
4: Okay, so I, I was gonna follow up on your point about executive uh, action not being executive orders. And I think that's it's a really important development and that it's been possible because we have, in the period of time from the 1940s until the, the present, we've grown the uh, executive branch, the administrative state in tremendous ways. And it's impossible to do that. It's impossible to have those uh, those agencies doing things that don't create zones of discretion. Executives, you you can't you can't have a detailed policy coming out of Congress that's viable. There's got to be the executive discretion. And so every president starts looking for that. And that was one of Bill Clinton's big initiatives yeah. w- was to recognize that he could initiate action in the regulatory agencies starting from the, from, from the White House. And that's, um, and that's what uh, President Trump is trying to do, except the reverse. <laughs> so I wonder, Adam,
1: from, from, a, from the point of view of, of the legal profession, law, um, there's a whiplash here because we are more polarized. So the distance between a Barack Obama and a Donald Trump, Republican and Democratic president on policy is, is you know, getting wider. Consistently, then we see presidents, as we we're saying, acting unilaterally more than relying on legislation, and so therefore you, you you know you have a president Obama who does net neutrality, who does a clean power plan, who does uh, uh, you know the, the DACA, and and then and then immediately it's all undone or you know and other executive orders, and you compare that to the difficulty they're having undoing the ACA, which is an actual law, kind of quaint but, you know, a law, and it's harder. It's harder to do that. So is this kind of a feature of where we are going in our politics as we are more polarized, and presidents have to... because The polarization both requires them to do more unilaterally and then means you get wider swings, wilder swings, when you switch parties.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, increased use of executive uh, action and executive orders uh, is very susceptible to being overturned by the next president, uh, and we've seen that. Uh, and, and as a result, there's a, a lot of uncertainty in the law uh, that's coming out of the uh, uh, executive branch. Uh, that's one of the ideas that's motivating someone like Neil Gorsuch to argue that courts should not defer to executive agencies because the idea is executive agencies are just sort of responding to the latest politics uh, and, and not doing yeah. what the statutes really say. So
1: Lynn, this is the curveball I want to introduce. Oh, it. We, okay. Go ahead, let, let me introduce the curveball. Right, okay. Because we've been, talking <laughs> about, we've been talking about Trump and I think there is a sense, going back to Nixon and Schlesinger's the imperial presidency, that Republicans are more inclined to expand the authority of the president. I wonder, Democrats have now won the popular vote in six of the past seven presidential elections, which no party has ever done in America since the formation of the modern party system in 1828. So, but they've only won the electoral college four times and they've only controlled the House, I think, for six of the 24 years of that period where they've won the popular vote, six out of seven. There are real questions about the distribution of their vote and whether this national majority can control all the levers of power. So when you look at that, when you look at a Democratic Party that is today more likely to win the White House than the House, I think, I think uh, is in the long run are we going to see democrats with a greater incentive and necessity to expand presidential authority even than republicans
3: Well I think I want to that was stop my curveball. right there and just ask I think I'm right about this but you guys chime in that a lot of the big expansions of presidential authority have come from the new deal and you know from Democratic but 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 it, but it was <laughs> but it was
1: rooted but it was, there was a lot of legislation. I mean they they, yeah. they, they created agencies. Right. I'm talking okay. about the unilateral okay. executive okay. action not okay. going to Congress. I'm saying I see. you have okay. a dem- you have a democratic uh, coalition yeah. that has won the yeah. popular vote six so, out of seven, but c- has struggled okay. to win the House yeah, yeah. even yeah. at the best points of that. I see
3: what you're saying. I, so I think I think here's one thing we're so not talking about Congress, and I hate to be the person Ooh. that says like we're <laughs> giving them a little bit of short shrift here, but you know when I think about the Obama administration wanting to fix healthcare in the United States. Why didn't he do that by executive order? Okay, because he knows that the next time a Republican comes into the White House, they just undo that, and he doesn't want that. So they do the hard work to try to get that done when they have unified governments. They can pass a law, because laws are a lot harder to undo than these executive orders. And so I don't think that this is the new normal the ping pong of executive orders. That's what you're yeah. sort of talking about. Because I think there, there will be presidents who want legacy legislation, and they will have to do it through Congress.
1: John, but what, but what I'm asking is whether, if you consider the, the, the distribution of the Democrat, where, where Democrats are strong and where they are weak, over the long term, is it, are we going to see more presidents like Obama who are going to struggle to have congressional majorities, especially yeah. with the small state bias in the Senate, to, to get 60 votes to do what they want to do and thus e- it, thus be put, kind of put, impelled in this direction toward their being the ones who want to expand presidential authority?
4: Right. That's, it's, that's my story, it's, and I'm sticking to it. It's, <laughs> it's going to be a long time, I think, before we see a... Um, a, a democratic sweep of of the entire Congress that leads to the... Con- presidents make huge legislative initiatives when they have won crushing victories mm-hmm. in, 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 in elections. And it, if you go back in, in US history, we do dramatic things when one party crushes the other side. It's only happened a few times. And, um, and I, I don't see that happening for either party for a while. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, so that means that both presidents are going to w- want to take advantage of whatever the kinds of uh, realms of discretion are that they can find already existing in the existing law. Uh, but Barack Obama couldn't have done the the, uh, the equivalent of the Affordable Care Act without a law. Yeah. I mean, it's right. not just that he didn't want it to right. not go away easily; he couldn't have done it. And um, and so um, uh, so it's going to be a it's going to. I think we're gonna see this, this incentive. I believe I'm agreeing with you that there is gonna be this, this powerful incentive for, for presidents of both parties to, uh, to act using executive authority and there's gonna be a kind of policy substantive swing back and mm-hmm. forth. Yeah. Uh, We've talked about
1: Congress as a potential check, limited courts, more robust, but let's talk about an area that you focus on a lot, which is we haven't talked about it at all yet, which is the government itself the executive branch. I mean, th- there have been so many leaks of mm-hmm. so many, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and so many different e- uh, evidence of the bureaucracy itself, believing that th- this administration is trying to subvert their mission. To what, extent can, to what extent is that an effective check or once they get their people in place, does that all just fall into
2: line? There's, particularly for Republicans, the bureaucracy is one of the bete noirs of, yeah. of the government, and there's a certain rationale to that because the sorts of people who go into public service in general are on the more liberal end mm. of, the, uh, of the spectrum. Uh, but in this administration, as, as you're, you've suggested, there's a really fascinating <laughs> phenomenon at the moment, which is the very apex of the government is more or less staffed. I think there's still right. a, a secretary or two to go the rest of the sub-cabinet almost is almost non-existent. And those are the people who really matter in bureaucratic politics. Those are the people who are there to establish relationships with the civil service and to ride herd over them also. So you have that kind of tension that I think is going to rise at some point if Trump ever gets his, his government staffed up, but for the moment is somewhat... Uh, muted, except in one fascinating area, which is probably the last one I would have expected if you'd asked me mm. a year ago, which is Trump's at war with the intelligence agencies. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is, uh, again, not, not what you'd expect from a Republican president in particular. But there, you know, you're seeing an example of a bureaucracy with phenomenal resources, huge ability to leak information... And to they've cover been, up the leaks, and they've been doing a little bit of that. Yeah. And they have really <laughs> taken it to Trump. So, <laughs>
1: Congress, courts, executive branch. John alluded to a fourth source of check, which is really a, a, which is a modern phenomenon that has really grown. Which is the which is the states, right? I'm, I mean, I, I have this image, I, I you know, image in my head of the French after the Germans occupied Paris, fighting from North Africa, uh, <laughs> and in World War II. That under Obama the Republicans are kind of pushed out of the executive branch and then they kind of reconvene in the states to, in in a way, systematically suing in a way that we had not seen. I remember talking to Tommy Thompson and John Engler about the, they were not doing that against Bill Clinton in the 90s, that that has become a new phenomenon. Now, as you said, we've seen it with the attorneys general from Democratic states systematically suing on the national initiatives. Uh, How important a new front is that in the kind of the struggle between the parties?
4: You know, I think this is a fascinating development in American politics is the resurgence of the states. Uh, back in the old days, when Joel Aberbach was a graduate student, uh, mm. uh, which <laughs> is part. almost unimaginable <laughs> to me, that was really
2: long uh, ago. The, wow. uh, <laughs> you know, um, uh, the
4: you know the, the s- study of states and local government was on in in our profession yeah. was on this sort of slow decline. It was yeah. this boring Ooh. zone Ooh. being overtaken by preemption at the national <laughs> government, and all of a sudden there's a lot of really interesting action that's taking place at the states and. And part of, p- part of this is, the, is a lesson about how politics can cut both ways. Mm-hmm. So the resurgence of power in the states was part of a Republican program to build zones of resistance and, and sort of uh, uh, advance policies that were hostile to the, what they saw as the dominant Democratic uh, policy agenda. And yet it turns out that the uh, Democrats can do the same thing. Yeah. And so uh, the courts have articulated the principles that allow these things to be defended against a, a federal government, and we just saw this in the Sanctuary Cities yes. case. So. Yeah, uh, which, which brings, which is a perfect
1: uh, uh, lead into what I wanted to ask Adam. So this, this, comp- this, this conflict goes both ways, in the sense that you have now Democratic states that are going to the courts to try to stop uh, various Trump initiatives, but you are beginning to see a Republican uh, administration, not too long after Bob Dole campaigned with the 10th Amendment he used to take out of his pocket every day, <laughs> talking about preemption on all sorts of fronts. Today Rick Perry said that they may seek to preempt state laws like California promoting renewable power because they think it's a national security threat to have too much solar and wind that will destabilize the grid, the national grid. Uh, You know, you obviously have the sanctuary city threat. Um, uh, We see, you know, there there, there are a variety of other areas where they may... So to what extent do you see, as part of this expansion of of executive authority, an attempt to rein in these states going in a different direction? I
0: think there, there will be efforts to rein in the states now that the Republicans are in control of government. Um, uh, it, it turns out that uh, Republicans, pretty much like Democrats, are fair-weather federalists. Uh-huh. Right? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <awesome>. <laughs> you know, maybe today we'll be a federalist, you know, and a states' rights proponent. and you're starting to see states' rights being really asserted by. Democrats now, uh, and it just goes to show you that the, the story of states' rights is, uh, it's really a tool. It's not a value in and of itself, but it's a tool to get your policy agenda, and if you think that state by enhancing the, the rights of the states and limiting the power of the federal government is going to enhance your policy agenda, then you're going to promote mm-hmm. states' rights, and uh, it's not really some fundamental principle that they believe in so much, but I do think that that necessarily Republicans or uh, states' rights advocates more generally uh, seem to believe that much. The difficulty for, the, for, for Trump, I think, is that for For years, conservative judges have really promoted an idea of states' rights, of the Tenth Amendment, uh, of limited federal power, and the conservative judges, they're not fair weather Federalists. They Mm -hmm. believe this as a matter of principle. And so some of the same uh, Republican appointees to the judiciary that we've seen uh, under uh, the Bush administration and whatnot and we'll see under Trump. Will actually be pushing back on the administration's efforts to aggrandize uh, federal power vis-a-vis the Lynn, states. Lynn,
1: I'd be interested in your take on the, on the growing conflict between red states and a blue f- president, blue states and a red president. W- where is this? Where is this leading us?
3: Well, uh, again, I think that this is so important because to me, this is this is the magic of the American experiment: the shared power between states and the national government. Um, and the national government really ha- has not that much enumerated power. Um, and then that Tenth Amendment really says, you know if it's not in the Constitution, if we forgot it, it goes to the states. And I think that you know um, the first attempt to organize as a country failed. The Articles mm-hmm. of Confederation were a complete failure because we didn't have any coordinating mechanism to make states fall in line. And so when I, I was thinking when you were asking Adam about this, what leverage could the president put on states? Um, and maybe I don't know. What do you guys think? Like more carrot, you know, carrot and stick kinds of things. More stick, there, probably. You know, or more carrots? Maybe. <laughs> maybe there are carrots. I don't know. Um, but that would be traditionally one way that these kinds of coordination problems. But, but have been given, solved. given,
1: given your what you just said about the Tenth Amendment, do you think in the long run? Whether it's a, you know, President Obama was in court against uh, Texas and North Carolina on their voter laws. He was in court against Arizona on their show-me-the-papers law. Uh, Trump is now in court on sanctuary cities. It sounds like you think in the long run that the local authority is going to survive pretty well rather than the federal government, a president from either side, gaining more control. Is I it?
3: think so. I think if I had to bet, now, and, yeah. and taking account of how Adam said, like, none of us want to be pre- make predictions anymore, but... Especially I, about the future. I, I, yes, 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 especially about the future. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that this this experiment that we've set up uh, with shared federalism and the, and the dual, dual federalism and shared power is, is a pretty strong design. Um, and I would guess that uh, we can come back here in, in you know, 12 years and still be talking about this.
2: Listening to the conversation, particularly what Adam said about the courts, I kept thinking, um, imagine if the court overturns Trump, and if Gorsuch turns out to be an important vote on that. I tried to imagine the tweet.
3: (laughs) 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 Crazy Neil Gorsuch. Right. my, my,
2: My candidate is Gorsuch, traitor
1: that's pretty good well, we're going we're going to bring in the audience in a moment so, but, so let me try to kind of uh, get, get a kind of a, 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 su- a summary thought, and then maybe we'll do it again after the questions. Uh, but we're talking about a world in which I mean it, it, the polarization has been such an intrinsic part of uh, infusing everything we're talking about with states being enlisted as part of the national argument, whether they are red or blue. Presidents struggling to pass legislation in part because it is becoming almost impossible to get significant support from the other party on anything you do. Uh, Judges being seen essentially as an extension of this conflict based on who they, uh, you know, w- w- where we have five four decisions now routinely with all the Republican appointed justices against all of the Democratic appointed justices. Um, in a world where, you know, where the, where the fissures, the political fissures in, in, in American society are so deep and uh, so in, uh, uh, indelible at the moment, um, is, 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 it, is it simply going to, is the inevitable uh, kind of outcome of this a world in which uh, presidents, are pushing the boundaries, and the out party feels, to quote Theodore Roosevelt this time, you know, we stand at Armageddon and we battle. Is this just, is, 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 is politics going to become, in effect, more apocalyptic for where one side just feels like the country is slipping away as a routine matter?
0: I was going to say, I think so, and sadly enough. Um, uh, and part of this gets back to sort of the reformation of the political parties. Yeah. It's funny, you were talking earlier about. Um, how we used to have periods of unified government control in one party uh, hands very frequently throughout mm-hmm. American history. And since 1968, I think, was your yeah, year, we don't have many. it's become incredibly rare. Well, 1968 is not an odd year, right? What happened right before 1968, uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson, when he signed the Civil Rights Act uh, yeah. a few years before that, I think it's an apocryphal quote, but nonetheless uh, captures an idea, which he said, I'm delivering the South to the Republican Party for the next 50 years. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether the South became. Republican, uh, switched from Democrat to Republican because of the Civil Rights Act. Um, But the phenomenon did happen. It became a Republican Party. So for the first time since the Civil War, you have a Republican Party that's conservative, not a Republican Party that has liberals and conservatives, Mm. and you have a Democratic Party that's liberal instead of a Democratic Party that had FDR liberals and Southern Democrats and that's making everything yes. much, much more. harder. I don't know that Americans have changed so much right. in their political attitudes, and we've become more polarized. What's happened is the political parties have become more polarized, well, right. and they're making everything hard.
3: And it's it's important to to separate out two things. The the efficient sorting that has happened mm. that you just described. We got the conservatives out of the Democratic Party, we got the liberals out of the Republican Party. That sorting is happening all over the place, not just in the South, that the South is a huge part of it. Um, separate that from the distance between the two parties on average. I like to think of those things as different things. So there's, there's people used to be mixed up, ideology yes, and party. Right, right. Now ideology and party are more right, aligned. Right. Okay, a lot of that is because of the South. Um, but also, have the two parties, actually the, the average person in the parties, moved out to the tails. Now in Congress, certainly that is absolutely true. Um, At the mass level, the evidence is mixed. Mm -hmm. Um, Good people working on this problem and people are having a hard time coming up with a consensus answer. And so that, to me, gives me a little bit of hope um, that it isn't always going to be apocalyptic apocalyptic showdowns, um, and that someday there might be room for a political entrepreneur, a, a leader, who can go out there and coalesce around the idea of bargain and compromise. Because we're all tired of disagreeing. You know, I don't think mm. that's impossible as a political strategy.
1: Uh, Bill Clinton? George W. Bush, Barack Obama, each arrived in Washington saying they were gonna heal the divide. The country was more divided when they left, when they arrived. Donald Trump isn't even pretending right. uh, <laughs> that he's healing any divides. Uh, is, is, there a way, is there a way that the politics is less uh, apocalyptic?
2: Well, I, I think we're in a, in a period that in some ways is, is peculiar in the sense that uh, our population is changing mm-hmm. demographically a great deal and we don't know, for instance, with the Latino vote, uh, the Republicans have thrown that away, um, and maybe permanently, but we can see in the survey data there's a lot of opportunity there for the Republicans if they would seize on it. And we're also, as we all know now, going through a tremendous set of economic changes that are unsettling the population. So it's certainly conceivable that those things can have an impact But I must say, when you think about the United States and the constitutional system we have, it's set up on the notion that all these interests were gonna be cross-cutting, okay? So there would be moderate, in party terms, they didn't envision party, but there'd be moderate Republicans, liberal ones, conservative ones. That's gone by the wayside. And and the system really does not operate well, to put it mildly. It operates extraordinarily poorly at the moment, because it doesn't fit our institutions yeah. any longer. It's more so par- we, a, we're parliamentary,
1: a quasi-parliamentary system without parliamentary rules. Exactly. By the way, when you were talking about kind of the faction and Madison, I felt that there was some yeah. song from Hamilton that we should <laughs> break into at that point. John, well, I, your final I, thought, and then we'll bring, bring in the audience. I, I'm,
4: I'm, uh, I tend to be optimistic on this ap- 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 apocalypse <laughs> uh, I- issue. Um, it's hard to actually say that because I know who the president is, but the... Um, um, the, the Republican Party is deeply divided. Donald Trump does not have a natural base in the Republican Ooh. Party. He brought no, uh, co- he had no coattails. He has no friends in Congress. Nobody owes him anything. So uh, there's, not a, there's not a Republican movement that Donald Trump is in the position to lead. And so I, I think we're gonna see, a, a, and we've seen something that I, that I don't remember in a long time, which is highly mobilized, pissed off Democrats. <laughs> who are active at the local level and getting organized in ways we haven't seen before. I think we're going through a period of protracted flux. It's gonna be very unstable, but I don't think, uh, I don't think uh, apocalyptic.
0: All right. <laughs> Uh, Hi, Alison Cord. Um, My question is about the role of investigative journalists in potentially playing a check on this current president. Uh, As we know, Watergate didn't get started with the Congressional Committee. It was two reporters at the Washington Post. Given the considerable issues with both the House and Senate Intelligence Committee's investigation into Trump's Russia hacking, um, possible collusion with Russian hacking, some of us are hoping potentially the fourth estate could play that role again. Do you have any optimism that that could be the case?
1: You know, the answer is yes. I mean, to a point. I mean, uh, I, I think clearly investigative journalism has already had a big impact uh, on the on the Trump administration, um, in particular uh, where it intersects with the trouble, with his struggles with the intelligence world, because I think there are a lot of people uh, involved in law enforcement and intelligence who are, who have been deeply worried that a full investigation of whatever happened with Russia would not be allowed to proceed. And obviously they have been, there have been sources that have been providing uh, information to two great former LA Times reporters in particular, Greg Miller at the, at the Washington Post, whose revelations led to Michael Flynn's resignation and Mark Mazzetti uh, at the New York Times, among others. But ultimately, uh, I think, you know, there is, the press is not the opposition party. And uh, as someone was saying before, uh, I believe that you know, Congress, uh, if, if leaving aside the question of the courts and stopping executive action, Congress is the one who can provide full thorough oversight and the press can and will and is, but they cannot go, they don't have subpoena power. The New York Times does not have subpoena power.
4: Next question in front. Hi, my name is Max Goldberg. One of the things we talked about or was mentioned is that we haven't spoken a lot about Congress tonight. And we have a Congress where a small group, particularly in the House of Representatives, can bring all legislation to a stop. So even though we're going into a quasi-parliamentary type of government right now, how do you see any changes coming about as a result of government being able to be brought to a standstill by a very small group of legislators? Well, John. W- one of the w- one of the standard views about uh, when you get to conclude when you, when civil wars conclude is when the parties both parties realize that they cannot win, and that the cost of continuing to fight is overwhelming, and something like that is a possible scenario in this kind of in this kind of situation where en- enough scorched earth politics with each other, and uh, and and. Uh, people realize that the, the trick with the, with the uh, conservatives is that they seem to not mind losing as long as nothing happens. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's the trick. That is really true. Mm-hmm. That's the key.
3: But this is when- also a case where, so that's, a, that's sort of maybe an electoral uh, check, maybe they're going to get primaried. If they, if they think that they're losing too much electorally, maybe they start to worry about their futures. Um, but there are some institutional changes that could happen. Um you could do away with the Hastert rule., uh, this is the idea that, as as the as the party with the majority, you only bring legislation to the floor for a vote in the House that the majority of your party is in favor of. when sometimes this is what we were saying before. sometimes, a majority of the Congress is in favor of something, but it can't get to the floor unless a majority of the major party favors it. So if you do away with that rule, you might be able to break some barriers. Um, But that's exactly the kind of case where I mentioned earlier that a president might come in and say, I know you're not gonna do away with the Hastert rule, I get that, but I'm gonna do an executive order here and solve this problem for you. So there are some institutional things that can happen as well
2: one one clue that you'll have for that is i mean trump ran constantly saying i'm a deal maker i know how to bargain um so far he's proven to be quite the opposite of a of an effective deal maker i think that's a fair statement but you'll know that something's going on here when trump actually starts courting the Democrats. You know, and to Lynn's that's, point. That's the yeah, intelligent thing yeah, to do. Yeah.
1: Right, party. and to Lynn's point, I mean, uh, the healthcare gave you such a, a vivid example of that because by, by excluding Democrats from the beginning and never making any attempt to bring them in, yeah. in essence, he gave, and Ryan, every faction in the House caucus a veto yeah. because they don't have enough votes. Um, and, and if you had 30 or 40 Democrats, you would not be as worried about the Freedom Caucus or the Tuesday group. Um, I probably if you had the Democrats who had the Tuesday group would be the Freedom caucus would be on the outs. But they as long as they are kind of in this Haster rule model, they are skating along the, the ledge, and Tom DeLay could show that he could do that,, you know, for many years. Ryan is struggling to make it work with a different generation of, of, of members.
2: One constitutional situation that might be new with Trump is that the commander-in-chief, it seems to me, can order military action on a whim. And and the courts and Congress are helpless, for example, North Korea.
0: I think about where uh, executive power, why it has grown or how it has grown over the 20th century. We've talked a lot about the rise of the administrative state and the great big government bureaucracies that manage the economy and whatnot. Uh, But another area where presidential power really has expanded is in war powers, the ability to fight battles. We haven't had a declaration of war, a formal declaration of war since Korea. Did have an authorization from Congress for uh, 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 the use of force against Al-Qaeda and whatnot. So we've had some other smaller declaration likes, but for the most part, presidents just act on their own when it comes to uh, uh, war powers. In 1973, Congress tried to stop this by passing a law called the War Powers Act that requires the president Uh, to notify Congress within 48 hours of the use of any military force uh, and uh, requires the president to withdraw any troops after 60 days uh, if there hasn't been an affirmative congressional approval. Uh, for about 30 years after that, that law was passed, there was a lot of debate about uh, all the presidents who were failing to obey it. Um, but it's now gotten to the point in the last 15 years where we don't even talk about the War Powers Act anymore and the President, both Obama, uh, and uh, and uh, I'm sure Trump will do the same, will violate the provisions of that law um, willy-nilly and with no blowback. Joel, can I, oh, can, like, I can I follow, oh, go ahead.
3: I was just gonna say, that the reason there's no blowback is because this works for Congress too, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, oh, you don't want us to make a hard choice about whether to invade, the, go, we're good with that. Yeah. That's fine yeah. with me. You make the hard choice, Mr. President, so.
1: Joel, it's not a, this goes to the one we talked about before. It's not a formal check, but to what extent do you think uh, President Trump is in a situation where if he, given his, his limited, you know, very limited public approval numbers, lowest ever of a president uh, at this point, uh, um, and, and the kind of situation he's in, to what extent would, uh, does his national security advisor his defense secretary, his secretary of state, have the ability informally to stop him from doing something by threatening to resign uh, or, or some other way? I mean, is there a bureaucratic check on his authority because of the unique political situation he's in?
2: I think there is a one, I'm not sure I'd call it a bureaucratic check as much as a political check. Those three individuals, um, my understanding is they're sometimes called the grown-ups mm-hmm. in the administration. <laughs> and there's a sense that they're experienced and mature and, and sensible enough not to do anything remarkably uh, foolish. So I, I think in that sense, it, it could but have that impact. But, I mean, you, know, you can imagine that if Trump ordered the military to do X or Y, um, they'd be faced with a really difficult situation in terms of directly disobeying him. Um,
1: Cause, cause generals, are, they have spent their whole lives taking or- orders from presidents. And they're,
4: that, that And, and well, uh, of course, one of the things that, uh, that Trump did during the campaign was to uh, insult all the generals and all the military <laughs> by saying that he knew how to uh, conduct military operations better than they did and they were all stupid. And so um, he, I, I think the chance that he will get Pushback from uh, military people if he's proposing something that they think is really manifestly stupid it is, 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 is It's very hard. Yeah. Yeah. Very yeah. You have to
3: have thought about this. Like, if you're going to take this job, mm-hmm. you know, your conversation over coffee with your family is like, "Am I willing to commit treason?" Right? Because that's what you would have to do to not follow through, and you know, that's a really big question. So I think or
1: could you short of that, could you could you just say, "I, you know, I will resign." I mean, if, if, no. if yeah, his yeah. national security advisor, yeah. defense secretary, and secretary of state all set, went to him in the Oval Office and said, I will resign right. if you go ahead with doing this, right. given where he is overall in his political standing, that might be, is that a, is that a check?
0: I think the only check is Ivanka.
4: <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, so they would go talk to Ivanka. Yes, yes. <laughs>
2: And my question is just to ask your opinions on what I think is maybe a rumored movement about a constitutional convention.
4: Uh, Is it it likely to happen? Is it dangerous in this time of uh, division? And are there any really compelling
2: ideas you'd want to see considered seriously?
1: So you need, need, uh, the Republicans are, you, you need what, 38 states to, roughly 38, 39 states? to call for a constitutional yes. convention, and Republicans now have unified control of 30 yeah. They're almost there, but they're short. Uh, and, and the thought, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but the Republicans control nearly enough states to request a constitutional convention. And the thought is that if there is a constitutional convention, that's where it would come from. Uh, although I know there are some on the left who are kind of intrigued by the idea too as kind of a maybe you could overturn Citizens United and things like that. But mostly uh, this is something that uh, is being pursued by things like basically conservative state networks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is a reflection of how weak Democrats have been in the states, you know, despite these national popular vote majorities that are kind of maldistributed uh that this is but yes this is like being discussed i mean they're not there uh but if you had a bad 2018 election republicans are within sight of enough states to call for a constitutional convention i don't remember the exact numbers but they're they're within sight of it
0: Well, but even if they get a convention, then they have to get whatever comes out of that convention ratified by the states. Uh, But But you need a larger number of states. How many you need, three quarters? You need three quarters. So uh, I think it'd be very difficult to get the three-quarter states to ratify anything that happens at a constitutional convention. I can only imagine what would come out of a constitutional convention in America today. (laughs) Although, you know, I guess in one sense, maybe we shouldn't be that worried. Congress can't even pass a simple law. Mm -hmm. So I don't know (laughs) what we're gonna...
3: (laughs) No, over here. Hmm. Last question in front. Hi, thank you for being here. My name is Hugo Garcia. So I was wondering, um, on a lighter note, we've been joking a lot about um,
1: President Trump's impulsive tweets, mm. so I was wondering, what's your view, is uh, his use of Twitter by uh, bypassing the press fundamentally changing the way that the executive branch communicates with the public, mm. and is this a positive change? We've got a communications professor. It's
3: a great right here question. Um, I did a panel like this several years ago in 2010. Um, with some uh, you know, journalists Ooh. who were complaining about Sarah Palin um, and, and her tweeting. And I sort of you know, pointedly said, well, if you guys wouldn't cover the tweets, she would stop tweeting. Um, and I don't feel that way anymore. Um, at the time, she was kind of a pioneer. Uh, she would tweet once a day, only once a day, ensuring that it got coverage. You know, it was a, it was a good strategy. Now I do think it is more of a, commu- a communication method. Um, for me, I find the, the political consultants and the pundits and the journalists, this is a professional tool. Like, people really use Twitter as a professional tool. And so, um, I think that, that it is a communication medium but I'm not sure that other politicians are quickly going to follow uh, Trump in terms of frequency. I think they all do it when they want to make a point, you know, and you can imagine like tweet by committee, that kind of thing. Um, the reason that Trump's tweets are unusual is that they're emotional and you can tell he's writing them on, you know, in the moment on the fly. I don't think we're likely to see too many politicians Following that, the same way we're not going to see just because he he you know won this election, we're not going to see the next presidential candidates not running any advertising, having sort of a slapdash ground game. You know, it's nobody's going to follow in his footsteps strategically or tactically. He was able to do that because he's unusual. He's a celebrity. Um, so I think, I think it's a medium that is gonna get used, but not in this way.
0: So I'll disagree uh, with my colleague, Lynn, but um, <laughs> uh, in largely, and, and she may be right that other people won't do it as well or do it as effectively quite so soon, but I imagine, uh, you know, we're seeing other people like Ted Lieu, the Democratic congressman who's made a, a big Twitter following uh, over the last few months just attacking Trump. I think more and more politicians are seeing this as a viable way to really connect with voters. And my theory would be that in 50 years from now, School children will learn, just like we learned about FDR and his fireside chats, our grandkids Ooh. will learn about Donald Trump and his tweeting Oof. and this innovative. <laughs> so I think more and more you're going to see, if not the exact format, but, uh, but the social media will be a new avenue and a new pathway for presidents to communicate in the same way they're a new way for all of us Ooh. to
4: communicate. Mm-hmm. Right, so there's this, um, you know, the part of the challenge with Donald Trump's tweets is that he's violating norms again. And so we're going to find out whether the norms get reinforced and, and re-articulated and, and but uh, one of the remarkable things over the history of the presidency <clears throat> is that presidents have been on the cutting edge of every new yeah. communications technology. They have never been laggards. They have always been out there figuring out and demonstrating ways to, uh, ways to use them to their advantage. and so. Uh, politicians are observing this and they're gonna try to figure out how to do it too. One of the things that I do is I, I run a big archive of presidential documents. And so this is a problem for us. This is a major yeah. piece of presidential behavior which doesn't come, come in a White House document. And so um, you know, it's, a, it's a challenge. It's a new sort of new challenge to how we understand politics operating and recording for history what was happening at the time. The, the, I think I
1: think the the thought of um, <clears throat> people reading Donald Trump's tweets in fifty years is sufficient to send all of us to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think that's where we are. Joel Lynn, John Adam, thank you. You've you been doing this all night.